Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we'll talk about why you shouldn't be scared to get old and instead embrace it as the next adventure in your life. We'll also talk about how useful speed radar cameras really are, what you can do if your neighbor's smoking is affecting your way of life, and what happens if you breathe in secondhand fentanyl smoke. And of course, we touch on the explosion on the Rainbow Bridge and why it's important to have all the information before jumping to conclusions. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Well, let me tell you something. Here's the real deal. The real deal was there was a couple. If you haven't heard this information already, I'm not going to bore you with too much of the details if you have, but here we go. The couple was uh, traveling in the 2022 uh, Bentley uh, four-wheel, uh, four-wheel, uh, four, four-door vehicle. And this uh, Bentley, uh, as people understand, they, the drivers were a couple in their mid-50s. Uh, they were on their way, they were driving a something called a, a Bentley, uh, uh, what's it called here? A Bentley Superfly or something like that. We'll get to that in just a minute. Flying Spur, excuse me. Bentley Flying Spur. So out of my league, I don't even know what to call them. Uh, Bentley Flying Spur, something around $350,000, $400,000 vehicle. Uh, anyway, they were on their way to a concert. Concert got canceled. They decided to go to the casino. On their way back from the casino, coming back uh, into the American side, uh, they uh, somehow this vehicle flew, uh, ex- sped up excessively towards the uh, border, towards the, the 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 you know the the gates and the uh, the uh, cubicles, if you will, or the little huts that you drive through the border stations, the crossings. Each one of them separated, you know, by concrete in between, and so on. They flew up through that, all of that at high speed car exploded in the air everybody saw it on uh, on the news everybody was running to report this whole thing and imagine now okay so that's what we know but imagine now you're sitting there we're sitting in a car we're getting ready to cross the border we're going into buffalo to have a good time you're coming out of toronto like it would be for me right coming across the border and all of a sudden out of nowhere kaboom this thing goes flying in the air explodes out of nowhere and no one knows what's going on all kinds of talks about vehicles by the side of the road near the uh, near the border crossing um, uh, huts or cubicles, uh, the little stations that the guy stand in. Somebody thought there were some vehicles there that were uh, loaded with um, with um, uh, some forms of explosive. But you know, everyone was so quick to run to jump to conclusions that were under attack, and I get that, right? I get it. I, I get the catastrophizing. I get the whole, you know, let's let's get to the ugly place first. But let me tell you, my friends, that's a sign of levels of anxiety. And if it's something that doesn't happen very often, so not a big deal. We don't need to talk about it. But if that's the way you live, you're always catastrophizing. You know, you're looking for well, what happens if this happens or what happens if that happens. And, you know, if I go here, this might happen. That's And, and I'll tell you, I do it because it's part of my anxiety disorder. It's part of my whole concern about, you know, safety and my OCD, obsessive, my obsessive compulsive disorder around things being perfect and in order. So I, I know I know what I know what we're all feeling. Right. So we immediately go to that place that we're under attack. There's got to be something. They're blowing up the border. Things are under, out of control. Right. Well, it turns out, just by the way, so 
number one, I think we need to chill our chill chill a little bit. We need to you know slow our roll as the as the youngsters say, right? Slow our roll, slow down a little bit, and actually get the information, right? Get the stuff, get the information, get the data before we jump all over stuff and lose our lose our minds, right? Freaking out, people are freaking out. I'm never going to cross at that border again. It's not safe. And, and again, don't 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 misunderstand me. I get it, but it's very important that you gather data, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's related to the work you do, whatever it is, before you act or react to something or about something, it's super important that you have all the information, that you know what the hell you're talking about, and that that in some way, shape, or form makes sense in the scheme of everything. And by the way, only Fox News, of all the news uh, stations that were out there, uh, both sides of the border, uh, Fox was reporting a terrorist attack right, there, right out of the gate, right? No, no, no big surprise that that's coming out of them. But remember, you know, like, by the way, this is a very, this is kind of a, a two-sided thing. As much as the rumors and panic were spread real quickly and everybody was jumping to conclusions, the authorities on both sides of the border reacted uh, super fast. And, and did a great job of, of uh, disseminating information and making sure that we all kind of knew what was up before we got there, right? Before we, the whole thing, you know, got to that stage. So as it turns out, now that we know more data, now that we understand more information, it turns out that the, believe it or not, now you're talking about a three, four hundred, three or four hundred thousand dollar car new and in the two hundreds to three hundreds uh, in the used market for sure. Okay. So we're talking about a 2022 Bentley Flying Spur, $400,000 car, give or take. Well, it turns out that the 2018, the 2018 to the 2021 model of that same vehicle were involved in a recall because of a potential issue. Listen to this. Ready for the drum roll? Potential issue. Come on, Leo, give me a drum roll. I'm just kidding. Potential issue with the accelerator. That could cause it to get stuck and continue to accelerate after a driver removes their foot. Sounds to me, you know, maybe a little bit, 30 odd years of investigative experience, but just sounds to me, take that aside, that likely, likely it's some kind of mechanical difficulty and or we've heard stories like this before where, you know, the, the, the driver has a heart attack, loses control falls forward towards the steering wheel such so does the body therefore the foot that's on the accelerator falls into the accelerator you can't get the body off the accelerator and so on and so on okay leo's got a drum roll for me come on leo here's my drum roll <laughs> there we go you gotta love this guy <laughs> thank you leo okay drum roll so 20 2018 2021 flying spur model if you're thinking of buying one you got nothing else to do with 400 grand and you're trying to buy a used one because you can pick it up on a hot deal for 275 just make sure you got the recall and that that was dealt with appropriately because it sounds to me like what we're going to find out here real soon is that either there was some terrible medical condition that caused uh, this gentleman to uh, to fall forward and, and lock his accelerator down in some way, shape, or form? Because they had absolutely nothing to to to, to die for. Like it's not like some people said, well, maybe it's a suicide thing or whatever. But they had everything in their life going for them. They had a beautiful family, successful businesses, a healthy couple, a happy couple. They were together. They had a lot going on. They went to concerts, enjoyed fun things and stuff together. So. You know, before you jump to conclusions about anything, what am I telling you? What I'm telling you is you need to sit, settle down, get your information, right, and then go from there.
That's what I'm suggesting. Anyway, when we come back from break, we got much stuff to do. Can you imagine? You're sitting in your apartment, your condo, your 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 townhouse, and all of a sudden you smell smoke or or, or cooking from next door, and 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 day after day after day after day you're smelling this. In this case, we're talking about tobacco smoke. Don't know what the heck to do because you know these people live in their own home. You live in your own home. There's a common wall. Between that common wall, there's this smell. You know, you're lying in bed, minding your own business. You know, you and your spouse are chilling out, relaxing, having a conversation, right? All of a sudden, you smell smoke. You know, you've just moved into a new place. Been there a couple of days. What the hell? You smell the smoke. You don't know where the heck it's coming from. Let's hear what uh, Katrin says in Surrey, BC, before we finish this story. Katrin, how are you? Catherine, oh, excuse I'm me, how are you? I'm so wonderful. <laughs> I'm Good. enjoying the mountains. Excellent. <laughs> it's so beautiful when it's clear out like this. What's up, kiddo? How can I help you? Well, I, I, I have asthma, and over a decade ago, I lived in this apartment building, and I deliberately found one that had non-smoking, no smoking building, and even had it written on the front door of the uh-huh. lobby. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. The the guy was smoking below me. Oh, God. And it would come out through the vents, and and it was a bachelor suite, so it would be cheaper. Uh, But we had a sliding door to go outside with a very tiny, you know, little um, step. That was my window (laughs) outside. And so he'd hang out the window, and he'd say, technically, I'm not smoking in the suite. <laughs> it would come up through my window where he's smoking because it's right below me. My whole place is full of smoke. I had to use fans <laughs> to blow the smoke into the hallway. Oh, God. That's did you talk to the landlord? Catherine, did you talk to the landlord? I did, and we got a new manager. And he said, and he smoked. Ah, so he didn't care. <laughs> there you go. And I'm sure what you would hear from them is, well, you know, he is smoking outside, technically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. So how did you? What what ended up happening? How long did you stay there till you moved, or did you just get used to secondhand smoke? I couldn't because asthma. I couldn't because I can't use puffers. They make yeah. my adrenaline go out of control, so I have to avoid all this stuff. So I had to move out immediately. Oh, my. Well, hopefully you're in a better place now where it smells good. Thank you. I am. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Catherine. That's <laughs> a great you. story. Really appreciate it. Okay. Well, there you go. So Catherine just took the, th- the thunder away uh, from the whole story here. But that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a couple who moved into a place um, and they bought a place. They fixed it up, renovated, you know, did the things they needed to do. And only to find that... Um, the secondhand smoke is unbelievable. It comes up through the cracks. According to this, the person who was living there, the, the couple, their living room and bathroom often smelled like an ashtray, the level of stale secondhand smoke hanging so heavy in the air, it often would wake up her partner in the middle of the night. They don't smoke, by the way, but their neighbors do. They share a common wall. Yep, and in Ontario, as it turns out, I don't know what it is like across the rest of the country, uh, but there isn't really a law. They're trying to work on something right now. There's a couple here that are trying to put together uh, the people, the couple in this article, um, Taze 
Livet and Peter Katz. One is a Juno recognized, both Juno recognized musicians and motivational speakers. Uh, they're trying to enact a bylaw preventing home to home transmission of secondhand smoke. Well, um, what we've got right now, they're not alone. Secondhand smoke is um, wafting from one residence to another. Uh, marijuana smoke, other forms of smoke, as people are complaining now these days, through walls and air ducts. We, we, also, we also found, by the way, last year uh, or a couple of years ago during the, the pandemic, maybe, I don't forget how long it was ago. I'm trying to put it in the back of my mind, but uh, found that people were getting sick. Uh, up from the vents from uh, like someone in a basement apartment had COVID and then someone in the second and story, second floor and, and first and second floor of the home that had multiple apartments were also contracting uh, COVID and they determined it was coming up through their, their air vents. So it's not just a smoke thing. But let's get back to this conversation. You're waking up. And, so what do you do? That The question is, what do you do? Kai, you heard what Catherine did. She had to move. 877-399-9898. We've got a few more minutes. What would you do? You know, if you're, if you're a, two ways. If you're a smoker and someone gets on you about smoking, saying you're not allowed to smoke in your own home, how do you act or react? Do you try to do something nice and maybe open a window where you smoke or smoke outside or tell them to go pound salt? Or in the other case, you're someone who doesn't smoke or certainly doesn't like the smell of smoke and doesn't smoke indoors if you are a smoker and you're smelling smoke from your neighbors, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it's coming from. Sometimes it's not just smoke. Sometimes it's a stench of some really funky stuff that people cook with, right? Well, Ontario Smoke-Free Ontario Act, like other provincial laws, prohibits smoking and vaping in all enclosed workplaces and public spaces. People can't smoke within nine meters of the entrance or exit of a public building. People can't smoke in bars, restaurants, or selected outdoor spaces. Most hotel rooms, universal dormitory, university dormitories, prisons, and other places of residence are also smoke-free. But there are no bylaws, zero, zero bylaws prohibiting smoking in private dwellings. Though some landlords in condominium, I, mean, I live in a condominium where they make it very clear you're not allowed to smoke in your unit. There are some, some young people were, you know, some guy, kids in their 20s were in the building, condo that I'm in. They rented a unit and but the whole place, the whole building smelled like weed for about three months. Uh, so they did the best they could, but, you know, it's nothing illegal. What you do in your own home is your own business, according to the Ontario law. That's the way it stands today. That's why this couple is trying to put together and, and get something passed that prevents that from happening. Uh, according to Health Canada, it's a big deal, something they hear about often. Um, they, they suggest that there's poison in every puff. Uh, it's like the warning label that they're going to be putting on cigarettes uh, coming up here. Um, it's, but they coupled, they, this particular couple spent thousands of dollars on purifiers and filters. None of it works. So they proposed uh, the Levitt and Katz, the the two the couple proposed bylaw. A proposed bylaw could uh, lodge a complaint. You could lodge a complaint with Toronto Health on uh, under such uh, conditions that the smoke might be verified. It has to be verified, uh, and somebody has to visit. An inspector has to come and visit. Uh, but it has to be. There's something about. Uh, quiet enjoyment, you know, living in a living in a place and enjoying having quiet enjoyment, meaning that you're able to uh, meaning you're able to uh, uh, enjoy a place that doesn't have uh, uh, tons of noise and, and stuff going on uh, that you can enjoy your property quietly without without uh, any hindrance. So according to the Smoke Free Housing Canada, a national website, 
the right to smoke is in, is in, enshrined in Canadian law, or isn't enshrined, excuse me, in Canadian law. Smoking isn't identified under provincial uh, human rights laws uh, from protection from discrimination, the website reads. But just because someone exercises their freedom to smoke does not mean they have an absolute right to do so. So tobacco stay, smoke doesn't stay put, according to the experts, according to the Canadian Lung Association. It travels, as we've said before. Uh, people breathe it out into the air. Uh, cigarette smoke, secondhand cigarette smoke, uh, contains 70-plus known uh, carcinogens, increases the risk of lung cancer and heart disease in otherwise healthy non-smokers, and can aggravate symptoms with people with heart disease, allergies, and breathing problems, like my new friend Catherine in Surrey, BC, who had to move because of her 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 asthma. Right. So, listen. This is something that's going to be uh, talked about for I think months to come. Hopefully, not years to come. Um, it's interesting to see what what kind of laws are going to write. You know, the, they're trying to put together some something here in a handful of cases in Canada. By the way, uh, cases of non-smokers. Um, unwillingly exposed to cigarette smoke, uh, according to the Non-Smokers Rights Association. They were able to get some some satisfaction, but certainly not uh, in the size and the quantity that we need uh, going forward. So pay attention. Make sure you talk to your politicians about it and, uh, you know, stay on top of it because, you know, this could be harmful to you or kids, pets, elderly, people you got living with you and so on. So, I don't know. Do you want to be forever young? Would you like to be young all the time, forever and ever? I think about that sometimes. I look back at some of the things I did in my earlier years and wonder what it would be like to go back to those days and kind of do them all over again. And I come to the conclusion, I don't want to do it. Doing it once was more than enough coming out the other side in one piece and uh, not, uh, you know, not hurting myself or others or, you know, like it just sometimes you get through some things and you just don't want to go back and try it again because getting through it the first time sometimes is more difficult than not. But I want you to listen to something and I'm just going to get to the, to why we're having this conversation because I, I, I happened to see, I was going through some, some media, I was reading something and I noticed a picture of this beautiful woman who I recognized uh, who was celebrating her 80th birthday. And she is and was in the picture stunning. Always has been. Have a listen to what she has to say in 1974 about what she expects to look like now, as it turns out, when she turns 80. I don't believe that your looks go. I think that your looks go in the sense of you're saying that you're not good looking anymore. If something has happened in your life where you're displeased with it, you're angry with it, and you start looking that way. You know, I intend to be fantastic looking when I'm 80. And she is the famous, the infamous, the extraordinary Lauren Hutton. I'd like to say she's my guest here tonight, but we don't qualify for getting Lauren on the show. Maybe someday, sometime. But uh, here's a question for you. Do you worry about getting older? What scares you the most? Or flip side, what do you do to stay young? That's one I can add to. And happy 80th birthday to Lauren Hutton, the first million-dollar supermodel back in the day. Right. So, you know, we've all grown up and many worry about getting older, getting into the golden years. 
And I remember talking to my dad, who's now in his 90s. I did a show with him on another network years ago for a Father's Day thing, thinking I might do that again sometime soon now that he's uh, uh, 97 and uh, come back at it. Uh, But talk to him about what life would be like. Did he expect to, to live to 70, 80, let alone 90? And uh, I remember his conversation. You know, he he always thought he'd live a long life. He always, you know, had a a sense of uh, you know desire and drive to want to live like that. And I think part of living a long life is wanting to, wanting to. Not everybody wants to. As sad as that is, right? Lots of people just, you know, say to me, oh, "I don't want to live till I'm ninety. You know, I'm seventy or eighty will be more than enough, and then I'm done." I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be a a burden on anybody. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that. But let me tell you about Lauren Hutton. This this person, this woman, this unbelievable human being has such a zest for life that there's just no way that she's going to let go or or feel old. She's traveling. She's living with pygmies in the in the in the African desert. She's traveling all over the place. She says being a model and an actress, which she's both of still today, by the way. Uh, she's an actress and still a model, and 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 still I think making uh, a, a large amount of money. She's a multimillionaire. Uh, probably many, many, many times over. You know, she did a famous contract years ago with Revlon uh, back in the 70s for $250,000 back in the day, right? That's a long time ago, uh, for 20 days worth of work. And that kind of leaned into her first million-dollar contract and so on and so on. But she is, you know, she is uh, living life. She's doing what she needs to do. She remembers turning 31 and being horrified and then recognizing that she's better now than ever, than she's ever has been. And the older she gets, the, 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 just the more in tune with herself she becomes. And she remembers reading something. What did she say? She said, uh, she said, when I was about to turn 31, which is horrifying, I mean, no one was anywhere near that age that she was hanging around with. And I'm reading the front page of the New York Times. She says, and I read this thing about a great baseball player. He's about to turn 35 or something like that, she says. And he says, I'm in a youth-oriented business. I have to have a million-dollar contract or else. And she thought to herself, right, you know what? I'm the youth-oriented business herself. Bingo. She went out and asked for a million-dollar contract. But it's not so much about the money she made and and how she lived, you know, how she she did her job, so to speak. What I'm really what I really want to talk about here is that, you know, this is a woman who has energy and excitement for life. And that's the message we're trying to share here with you all tonight, is that there's something beneficial in having a zest and feel a, 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 a desire to live the next day and day after day after day. You know, having a, having the drive, the desire to want to get to tomorrow, looking forward to things like trips and adventures. Unbelievable. And she never escapes her, 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 her desire to get out and do some things. She's had some bumps and grumps in her day, some lumps, as she said. Her partner of 27 years, his name was Bob Williamson, who was also her manager. He died in 97. At the time, she then discovered he had mismanaged millions, tens of millions of her dollars. Colossal for betrayal for her. She could hardly, you know, cope with it. But she managed to get through it, and she didn't live in self pity or rage. She just got on with it and went back to work in two thousand, and 
then she later on, and I'm sorry, she went back to work. And then in 2000, she suffered a, a near fatal motorcycle accident. She was hanging out with Dennis Hopper and the boys. Like, come on, man. Bike riding with Dennis Hopper and the guys? How much of a blast would that be? And she plays in the jungles and she travels the world and she's involved in all kinds of anti-aging things, all natural. All, you know, she, she hasn't had any, you know, real work that she talks about, nothing too invasive. Uh, it's all about positive energy, she goes on to say. So maybe that's the message, right? You think good, good happens. You think young, young happens. You think healthy, healthy happens. And you know what, my friends? Let me tell you something. This stuff works. You know, if you heard on other shows that we've had before, um, uh, we've talked about different kinds of situations with people with illnesses and such, where they've they've um, you know they've they've managed to somehow uh, will themselves well, as the doctors would say. In some cases, will themselves sick, as others might say. So there is a complete connection, direct connection, between how you think and how you feel. Straight up. Right, you can look. I can see you're shaking your head. Shake your head all you want, but I'm telling you, man, straight up. Listen to me. Come on, get in close. If you think positively, if you want, come on, come on. It's a secret. If you get in close, come on, come on, get in a little closer. There, that's perfect. Okay, not too close. I can smell your breath. But th there you go. Well, we've all had dinner, right? I'm sure not all of us have brushed our teeth yet. Anyway, I digress. Listen to me. It's all about how you think. It's all about how you feel. And if you feel like you're getting old, you're going to get old. And if you feel like you're still young, you're going to stay young. And you can will yourself to good health. You can also will yourself to bad health. You have the control, the ability to use your mind to control your outcome. Many outcomes, certainly the physical ones, the emotional ones, the psychological ones. We certainly can have some control over how we come out the other side. 100%. So if you're feeling a little down today and you just don't have the energy, you just don't want to get out of bed, you just don't want to go out and do anything tomorrow or tonight if it's still time to go out and party a little bit and have a good time with your friends and buddies and whoever, right? Maybe go for a walk with your loved ones, head out for a coffee late at night or a walk down the somewhere where it's crispy and, you know, kind of chilly and romantic and hold each other close. Because I'll tell you, living life to its fullest that's what it's all about. I'll tell you, my wife and I, we're totally focused on experiences, chasing positive, joyful experiences, because that's what's going to keep us alive. That's what's going to keep us fresh. You know, my father, he's 97. He goes to work four or five days a week with a shirt and tie on because he refuses to get old. He hangs around younger people. He's involved. He sticks his nose in on everything. He tries to be relevant, continues to be relevant, and he could go on, God willing, for a long, long time. Who knows? 105, 110? I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility. We can only wish that on him, I'm sure. So, Dad, if you're still up and you're listening, I wish you a long and healthy life. And uh, you can spend all that money, thank God. But we, we don't need it. Go spend what you need. Have some fun. Get all the health you need. And uh, he wants his passport. Yep. So that he can go travel somewhere. Not quite sure where you want to go, Dad. But we'll get you your passport so you can go somewhere and have a great time. How do you think these photo radar cameras serve the public? You think they're just a cash grab or do they actually 
keep the roads safer. Well, there's, people are up in arms about it. They're not really sure. There's a lot of people talking about it. Uh, in Alberta now, they're talking about uh, winding some of them down for sure. But imagine you live in a dangerous intersection. You live near a dangerous intersection, and you know, you're constantly fearing uh, something horrible happening in your area. Suddenly, they put up a, 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 a speeding camera one of these uh, red light speeding cameras or, or red light cameras that catch people on their way through a red light. Um, they're, they're, they're photo radar. You know, there's, so some of them are radars. Some of them are, are, are cameras at a, at a light. The, the, the question is, are they a cash grab? Are these photo radar cameras a cash grab or do they actually make a difference? Well, the province are planning to eliminate photo radar on certain roads including Stony Trail, and uh, according to the Calgary Herald. Um, but uh, have a listen to what uh, someone has to say. This is just a streeter where uh, an announcer was talking or a host was talking to somebody in Calgary about uh, photo radar. Have a, have a quick listen here. I think photo radar is good, especially in the winter, you know, it prevents the accidents. In the neighborhood, I think there has to be somebody pushing for it because you can't go fast anyways. There's speed bumps around here. They've narrowed the roads. So there you go. That's a, one person's uh, impression. But um, they're revenue-generating fishing holes, according to the UCP, UCP government, uh, said on Thursday that they're curbing photo radar on ring roads in Calgary and Edmonton as of December the 1st. They're embarking on a one-year review with 26 municipalities on possibly removing photo radar at some uh, at some of the 2,387 sites across Alberta, where revenue generation appears to be their sole reason for being in that spot. So the question is: Are they 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 serve a purpose? I guess there's a place for them. Absolutely, right? They have they they serve a, they have a there's a place for them for sure. Right. There's a there's a, a reason that they, they they can be helpful. There's a, a benefit, a purpose that they play. Right. Or that they could serve. But at the end of the day, in a lot of these places, it's a cash grab grabbing, you know, in some cases here, a hundred and some odd million dollars. It's a lot of money. And the question then becomes, according to to Glenn, my my producer, he's and he and I were talking about it. And he says, well, even if they are a cash grab, does not help the police department police the roads better. Consequently, it's still a safety thing. So the question is, are these cameras designed for safety or designed as a cash grab? You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars um, of, of ticket revenues that are in people's minds as they understand, you know, try to understand these, these what they call fishing holes, which is, uh, you know, what they call these cameras, these sections of area that these cameras are located in. So a fishing hole might be something that we used to call a speed trap, right? For example, same thing. These are speed cameras. They work the same way. In particular, we're talking about speed cameras. There's also, as I said earlier, red light cameras, a whole different conversation. Uh, we know they keep people safe for sure. But if you've ever received one of these tickets, these one of these uh, photo radar tickets, which I have, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say, but it, I have. Um, and honestly, all it really did, quite frankly, I mean, I'd like to honestly say that it slowed me down. But what it did is made sure that made me make sure that I don't go past that stretch of road anymore. You know, did the did the ticket itself slow me down? Sure, but not anywhere near as much as when I was stopped a few years ago speeding. Not very fast, but enough. 
And the cop pulled me over. Police officer pulled me over. Toronto police officer pulled me over. We talked for about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, he had heard me on the radio. He kind of knew my name. Uh, but we talked about uh, the dangers of speeding. And I'll tell you, that that had more impact on me than paying the, the $73 ticket I had to pay or whatever it was at the time. I'm not sure how you feel because no one's really texting in here or talking to me about it. I guess photo radar isn't a big deal for you, but um, for a lot of people it is. The Alberta provincial government, um, they're really focused on this. Premier Smith says there's nothing more than that. These are nothing more than a cash grab and do nothing to promote safer driving uh, or conditions on the road. Well, they might be annoying for a lot of people, but it still serves some benefit. There's over 2,387 camera sites across Alberta alone. Edmonton's 78-kilometer Anthony Henday Drive has 22 photo radar sites where in at least one spot, 11 times more tickets are generated than any other locations in the city. So clearly there's some kind of benefit there, some kind of use, right? So the question then becomes, are they are they serving a purpose? Are they slowing us down? Or are they just taking our money? And if they're taking our money, are we, is that really the reason they're designed? Right? Is that what they're designed to do? Well, according to the experts, not really. Right? So they've started looking at these things alone. You know, they're looking at them uh, specifically. Now they're winding. They're trying to narrow down where to position these cameras for the benefit of uh, of safety. So they're looking at areas where there's um, traffic zones in the 50-kilometer range or uh, in that area near construction sites or near playgrounds and school zones. Okay, I like that. That makes sense. But here's the other here's the other rub about photo radar. They're hidden in most cases. Hidden, meaning that not hidden like behind a tree and covered up with camouflage, but hidden as in terms of not in such a location that you could easily see, oh, wow, photo radar camera, I'm going to slow down. It's too late. When it's too late, it's too late, right? And trust me, I know what that feels like, right? When it's too late, it's too late. Now, maybe if they were more visible, let me tell you about a situation that I remember several years ago. I remember several years ago hearing about certain areas of the city of Toronto and the region of York, which is north of Toronto in Ontario, here where I live. Um, there was a series of locations that had police cars unmanned, unmanned, un, unmanned meaning no personnel, not specifically a gender. Un, un, there's no humans operating the vehicle, no humans in the vehicle. But the fact that they were there slowed people down. People slowed down thinking that there was a cop car ahead with a cop inside, probably with a radar camera. So there's a benefit to visible deterrence versus invisible deterrence. The invisible deterrence are generally going to bring you more money. And again, I don't want to be the guy here. I don't want to be the one saying that these are a cash grab. It's not where I'm coming from. I, I, I'm 50-50. I think in some cases there could be a cash grab, especially when they you go from like a, you know, suddenly you go from an 80-kilometer zone down to a 40, and you've got, you know, like not very much space to want to slow down. And as soon as you get there, there's either a camera or a radar cop waiting for you. So, you know, right? It's the old story of the some of the southern U.S. states that I remember traveling through uh, years ago. You know, there's... There's certain police officers down through some of those states that their whole job is to bring back uh, revenue from tickets. And you, they're kind of waiting for you, you know, before you actually have enough room to slow down and breathe. They're all over you with a ticket, right? 
So I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that these don't have a, a place somewhere in our policing of traffic violations, but in Alberta alone, 2023, 2022 to 2023, uh, provincial fines collected through photo radar was at a hundred and seventy-one million dollars. Hundred and seventy-one million dollars. A lot of money, right? So if they're using it for good policing. Okay, I'm all for it, but no, if they're using it to just uh, do other things with, improve uh, physical stuff and uh, operational things and uh, facilities and so on, maybe not so much, but helping victims of uh, of traffic uh, crimes or you know that kind of stuff, or helping people in, you know you know get the kind of rehab they need if they can't afford it with those kinds of dollars, I think would be a a good a good way to use the money. Next story is a little bit uh, disconcerting, a little upsetting for me. It talks about a young man who joined the fire department in Toronto and um, worked very hard. Worked, it was his whole really worked hard to become a firefighter. Um, five years after joining the fire department in March of 2017, he tried to end his own life. He was haunted by uh, all that he'd seen as a first responder, but mostly by the discrimination he says he suffered because he's gay. And he came to the Toronto Fire Service full of joy. He goes on to say his name is uh, Ed. We're going to call him Eddie or Ed. Uh, he was drawn to the profession by the prospect of helping other people. And 17 months after his suicide attempt, he's still struggling, both physically and mentally. He emerged from a medically induced coma. It took him months to relearn how to eat and walk. He's been diagnosed with depression, severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, unable to work, can't drive. Medications he's been on uh, call... Uh, to calm his racing mind have left him with a speech impediment, which is a side effect of some of these medications. By the way, you need to check out your meds very carefully. So here's the question for you. Here, here's really, you know, you're, you're running, you know, here, here, here you are, you run into a burning building, you know, you're breathing in toxic fumes. You, you're, you're hit with a wave of, of, uh, of, of, you know, pressure and, and, and pain and suffering. You get back to your, to your, uh, to your, uh, your firehouse and you're dealing with the homophobia uh, of people in the locker room. And, you know, in 2023, in 2022, in the 2020s, any time in the last decade for sure, uh, homophobia is certainly something that's passe. It's not something that people uh, have to, uh, should have to deal with in this day and age. And certainly uh, we could be better as a society. I think it's still something that uh, we, that plagues us as a society. I think we need to do a better job of understanding and, and allowing people to be who they are and who they want to be as long as no one's hurting anyone else. That's kind of the the, the measure here. But uh, Ed, Ed filed a human rights complaint after uh, his Toronto Fire Service in regards to the homophobia. And his allegation was the Toronto Fire Service uh, that they denied this, by the way, you know, categorically, that it never happened. Um, and it doesn't matter who you are, by the way, how brave you are. It doesn't matter what your day job is. It doesn't matter, you know, how famous you are, whether you're an athlete or an actor or, in this case, a first first responder, a hero, right? Just because you choose somebody to be your partner different than perhaps a choice others might make shouldn't make you a target of any kind of discrimination or bullying uh in 19 in 2018 by the way uh, an anonymous firefighter in uh, london uh, leveled a complaint about a culture of fear which uh, within the department that made employees reluctant to complain 
because of fear of reprise, reprisals. So in the in the claim that Ed fired with the work safety uh, workplace safety folks and insurance board, um, they said he did not receive the help he needed to process uh, the terrible tragedies. Um, and what's interesting here is that uh, even after filing the complaint, uh, it didn't change. It hasn't really changed his life much, right? He's alleging discrimination. He's hoping to get some kind of claim, but more importantly, to bring attention to uh, what it's like to live uh, amongst uh, not just the fire department these days, but fire department, police department, any organized uh, organizations such as uh, those. Um, we see it in the military still, uh, all over the place. Uh, and we're seeing it in the workplace. There's still an issue with people who make certain life choices. Um, you know, I'm fortunate. I work for an organization like uh, Chorus Entertainment where, you know, everyone is uh, not just allowed to be who they are and, and, and not, you know, not treated uh, unfairly for who they are, but, but, but really celebrated. Our diversity is, is celebrated. We have all kinds of interesting folks that have all kinds of interesting perspectives on life and make all kinds of interesting and unique choices. And we all come together as one big organization and um, no one is meant to feel uncomfortable for the choices that they make. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a senior guy that uses a, a mobility scooter. You know, when I wander around or run into the building, at, drive into the building at Chorus, I'm treated with respect and, and uh, given the opportunity to make my life easy by accessing certain parts of the building and so on. Like, they, I, I don't know about you, but I hear stories of others that use mobility devices and have issues with their coworkers and people in their buildings where they live. It's all part of the same stuff. We're not all the same, and we're certainly not all perfect. And my choices might be different than your choices. And the idea is that we're supposed to live like who we want to be and do our job according to the, the requirements of the job, the, the, the scope of work, if you will, what we're being hired for, and who we love and who we choose to spend our time with or sleep with or hang out with should be nobody's business, right? According to Toronto Fire Department, they cl they claim that they have a robust uh, post-traumatic stress disorder prevention plan and they employ a full-time staff psychologist who, by the way, Ed was not able to get access to any of the psychologists or social workers that Toronto Fire hooked him up with as part of his uh, employee uh, benefit plan, right, his uh, employee program to, to help with these kinds of things. Um, he just was, all of a sudden, no one was available to him. And, you know, he's never really been, you know, he, he according to, to the fire department that the, that Ed's next of kin, um, they needed to, you know, they, their information about them was missing from his file. Like it, the story just goes on and on and on about really bad choices that the Toronto Fire Department made in terms of how they managed and worked with this particular guy. Uh, there were, he worked in a particular, in, in one, in one, uh, area, um, for the, from 2019 to 2021, he worked at a station with a crew and supervisors who treated him like just another one of the guys. Right. And it was an amazing crew. They didn't care about his sexuality. He says they weren't snooping around his back and talking to others about him and so on. And then a change came in staffing. Uh, there was a new acting captain. Uh, he treated Ed really well at first until he heard or learned through locker gossip about his sexual choices. And then after that, the, uh, the acting captain changed his whole approach. And Ed was able to notice that. And it's all part of his claim. He did try to chase him out, 
basically. He tried to chase him out of the fire hall uh, by uh, harassing him, intimidation techniques, micromanaging, um, you know, microaggressions, trying to 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 uh, to uh, to light him up, you know, to gaslight him. And anyway, so the um, it, it just the allegations go on and on and on. But here's a guy, a great firefighter, a hero in so many ways, who ended up after so many years of this type of abuse and bullying, um, ended up in a situation where he had to, um, you know, he, he wanted to take his own life. And fortunately, he came out of it alive. He's suffering. He's dealing with what that means now coming back after, uh, after such a, a situation. But, um, and uh, hopefully the human rights claim will serve, will, will come back in his favor and serve the purpose of letting others know what's going on and giving him a voice like other victims. Very important to have a voice if you feel victimized. That's the one way that you become a survivor instead of a victim. It's by advocating for yourself, sometimes for others. That's how the you make that difference. So um, something to pay attention to. If you know something's going on in your workplace, speak up. If you know something's going around in your neighborhood, speak up. Uh, it's our job to do what we can to help everybody as we hope that they will help us be at our best. And uh, this is one way to do it. It's not picking on people that we just don't like the way they look or that they have too many tattoos or the color of their hair or kind of clothes they wear or anything like that. That's just where we got to be better than that at this stage of our lives, my dear friends. It's just uh, just the way, no, the way it's got to be because we can't do it like this anymore. Listen, uh, I want to have a conversation with you here about uh, an interesting situation. It's uh, people really at their best underneath this story. It's really portraying uh, some folks at the, doing great work uh, in Victoria, B.C. But the story doesn't start off like that. It starts off uh, understanding that the story goes like this. A Victoria, Greater Victoria housing provider is introducing new safety measures at one of its supportive housing sites after air quality testing found fentanyl concentrations inside. In a memo to external service providers and contractors, Victoria Cool Aid Society, great name, Cool Aid Society, senior leadership team, says the fentanyl in the air at its 3020 Douglas Street site showed up in concentrations of concern and exceeding the occupational exposure limit. We're going to find out what the limit uh, fentanyl has somewhere down the road here. We don't want anyone to be exposed who doesn't choose to do so says Cool Aids Director of Housing and Shelters, Don McTavish. And Don is my guest this evening. Don, thanks for being here with me. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my pleasure. By the way, we'll get to the, we'll get to the, the, the organization Cool Aid Society because I love the name. Um, so yeah. interesting situation. Uh, you find out that one of your uh, one of your um, shelters and by the way, people who don't understand that, you know, living in a shelter is uh, can be challenging enough for a lot of people with mental health and addiction disease. Um, air quality is certainly something uh, that wouldn't make it a, a whole lot easier for them. Um, and, you know, just imagine being someone and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting exposed to something that can, you know, potentially kill you. Don, Don, the first question I have just to, before we get into the, the nitty gritty of this, um, the article says here uh, that the concerns of um, concentrations of concern exceeding occupational exposure limits. Is there an exposure limit that's accept acceptable for fentanyl in the air? Well, that's a really good question. Um, 
so that we probably misworded that there is actually no accepted occupational exposure limits. Um, okay. BCPC or WorkSafe hasn't really set anything because this is, you know, this is a medical drug. It's only yeah. just sort of recently in the last couple of years, it's become uh, more of an occupational hazard because of the use of it. But what um, what I understand the industry that, that produces fentanyl uses is uh, 0.1 microgram per cubic meter of air. And so when we were doing our testing, that's what we used as a reference. And then you um, you kind of apply a, a time-weighted average um, because we'll have, of course, tenants in the building 24-7 and a staff person might be in a building for, a, for an 8, 10, or a 12-hour shift. So you're kind of looking at the concentrations we found um, and applying the time-weighted average. And so what we found in the, the highest case, I believe, was something like... Um, two milligrams if you were in that location for eight hours um i think like an average dose for pain is on the average is something like um do i say milligrams i shouldn't do that i should say micrograms um because it's so concentrated a hundred mm -hmm. micrograms might be the kind of dose you might get of fentanyl at a at a physician's at a hospital for acute pain and this would be um um, just a very small percentage of that, like, you know, the, the 0.2. So it's, it's our two micrograms. Wow. So I think the, it might, sorry tonight. So sorry, but it's, it's a small amount, but, um, yeah, yeah. but it's still, we're having, we're hearing the effects and we're hearing the, uh, we're hearing the, uh, exactly. the symptomatic um, results on staff. So it, it could be the fentanyl. It could be whatever it's cut with that's providing this, but regardless, I agree. There's, there really should be a zero tolerance for it. Um, we and can't so, yeah, interesting though. You, I'm mean, gonna cut you off here a little bit, but you mentioned you know the, the fentanyl. Fentanyl is you know used for for medical purposes, but I can tell you um, after you know being in this industry for a long, long time, there, there's never a medical prescription to smoke it. So right. typically, if someone is injecting it or taking it by pill form, um, there's probably very little. Um, uh, contamination because it's you know highly concentrated and used in, in close proximity when you're cutting it, burning it, smoking it, you know, or or, or, or putting it in a needle. <clears throat> when you're smoking it and putting it in the air, which is a whole different thing because people smoke the corners of these patches, right? Um, that's when it gets off into the air. And, and you're right, it, you don't know if it's the what's cut in them or whether it's the fentanyl itself. My guess is it's probably the fentanyl itself because it's so toxic. Um, mm -hmm. But it was interesting. So, what what kind of symptoms were the were your were your folks kind of what, what were they talking about? How were they feeling? Yeah, headaches, nausea, being lightheaded. You know, we um, we have some exposure protocols. So, if you do have any of these symptoms after you you know try and ask someone, say in a stairwell, not to smoke there, and you feel lightheaded after, go outside, get some air. If symptoms persist, uh, sometimes we've had people vomiting or even feeling you know just not themselves, lightheaded and dizzy uh, the next day, in which case we get them to seek medical attention. But uh, it's it seems to be have been increasing over the last uh, six months or so, um, when that's what prompted us to do some actual air quality testing to kind of see what we were dealing with. And uh, we were a bit surprised uh, to find uh, concentrations of fentanyl in the air um, because it's not really something that is kind of a known hazard so far. It's kind of an emergent hazard. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a, you know, many people would say it's a safer way to use the drug than by injection or even in pill form because, uh, you know, it's it's somehow uh, there, there's a, it's a lessened impact on the body, less less likely that you might overdose. But I, again, I'm not sure. They think the 
the the the the test of that or the the research on that is is still way out there. Um, let me ask you something here, Don. You know, getting away from the the fentanyl story here for a second, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your organization and Cool Aid and the number. You know, like tell me, give me an idea of the setup uh, around sure. this this situation. Sure, for sure. Um, we grown quite a bit. We started in 1968, back when it was um, aid provided in a cool way. That was the, you know, the 60s, the hippie era. Yeah. Um, and now we've got um, three main shelters, a women's uh, and women identified shelter. Um, and we've got 21 supported housing buildings uh, around the city, around seven or wow. 800 tenants. Um, and we wow. have a, a amazing medical clinic and a couple of medical vans that go around to provide services, not just at our housing sites, but others as well. So we've, we've got a quite a wide range of services. That's amazing. That's just amazing. And you only had this problem in one of your locations? <laughs> well, it's the only one we've tested. Uh, this is the one of the <laughs> most concerned. So, um, yeah. it's, it's a sort of maybe it could be a bit of a perfect storm. Um, during just prior to the uh, pandemic hit, um, BC Housing went out and leased and purchased as many sort of these older motels and hotels as possible to try and house as many people as possible. So the setup in this building is an old motel and it really has very, very poor air handling. It's, it's not modern yeah. in any way, shape or form. And it's what we call one of our most accessible buildings. So it's, it's, we're really trying to meet people where they're at with their addictions. So there's a lot of tolerance and a lot of, we're just trying to reduce as many barriers. So while you're not supposed to smoke inside anyways, this building does probably have more smoking indoors than our other buildings because of the nature of the folk we're working with and their struggles with their addictions. So you combine that with no air, no airflow in the building, no air quality. Uh, that's probably a little bit of a perfect storm. So, but we still are getting um, reports of symptomatic exposures at other sites and we will be doing some testing and we put a number of controls in as quickly as we could before we even knew kind of how bad the hazard was. And so we want to retest now that we've improved air quality and taken another a number of other steps just to see. Hopefully, we'll uh, be able to find that at least the common areas, office spaces, and other areas are clean and clear. Um, and so the staff don't have to walk around with respirators all the time. Oh um, as you can imagine, if you're struggling yeah. with addictions and have a history yeah, of trauma, having your care team, you know, having yeah, to use yeah. a respirator in front of you is not terribly trauma informed. My guest this evening is Don McTavish. Let's get Don back on the line here. Don, thanks for being here. Um, carry on the conversation. So real quick, we, we, we're we talking about air quality here. If you're just joining the show, we're talking about air quality in one of uh, Don's uh, facilities. He's the Director of Housing and Shelters for Cool Aid Society uh, in Victoria, B.C. And um, they found some air quality issues around people that were smoking fentanyl and so on. Don, um what about tobacco? Like we, we did a, we did a piece a, an hour or so ago on people living next door to somebody who, you know, has tobacco smoke mm -hmm. coming from their place into their place through the floorboards and so on. Have you had, do you have issues with tobacco smoke? Um, we do in other buildings. Uh, we actually tested for tobacco in this particular building and I was, we were all very surprised to find none. Um, wow. but yes, that, that of course is an issue in other buildings. We have, um, staff and residents, that it just doesn't really seem to matter how new the building is. If somebody's smoking the building, someone else can smell it and is impacted by it. So that's, that is a challenge. 
Yeah, do uh, it's interesting that folks you know that are smoking uh, fentanyl aren't following it up with a cigarette or twelve. You know, <laughs> it's usually it, it, it's interesting. I know it's, it's I usually mean, part it might be, of the uh, thing. difficult enough. It, one of the challenges is um, you know we're providing services to folks that are you know they've got they've got yep. health challenges, sometimes addiction yep. challenges. Yep. But at the moment, um, all of the supported housing we operate falls under the residential tenancy branch, right? So um, it's difficult to force someone to not smoke in their apartment or work with them. If It's just the only power you sort of have under a structure like that is eviction at the end of the day. And that's the opposite of what we're sort of here to do. So it's it's challenging when people have impulse control or they're, you know, maybe maybe arguably they don't have the ability to really not smoke in their apartment sometimes. So yeah, it's, it's challenging unless you have some purpose-built newer buildings with better air handling um, to try and help people through that. Outdoor space, but outdoor space, buddy, outdoor space, outdoor space. There you go. Okay. Quick question. Um, They're not all quick questions. I should stop saying that. Um, How did you address this? With the residents, like I mean, it's a difficult. Con- I run treatment centers. You know, we we try to yeah. you know, maintain maintain rules and so on. Uh, how did you have this conversation with your folks about you know we got to cool the smoking of fentanyl down right now because it's affecting other people? Yeah, well, obviously, try without shaming or blaming. You know, talk to people mm-hmm. about the impacts of the smoke on everybody else in the building and our mm-hmm. staff. I mean, our, our buildings tend to. They turn into pretty tight knit little communities, and we do that mm-hmm. as much as we can on purpose. Um, nobody's in the building trying to harm anyone else. Like folks are often quite, as you know, stigmatized, embarrassed about their own use. Um, the fact that it might impact others in a negative way, you know, is is um, shocking to them, is disturbing, uh, and it's an addiction. So they have they can't stop um, right. without a lot of help and support. So just talking to folks, making it as clear as possible, getting it, um, trying to let people know how serious it is. Surprisingly, when we actually had to make the uh, decision to ask staff to use uh, respirators in the common areas, at least until we have confirmation that our other controls have had an impact, that day it kind of came, it sank home to everybody, I think. It was, um, you know, seeing staff wearing masks for their own protection kind of, brings it home that the smoking is a serious issue. Like it really is something we have to address. That was kind of a drastic but visible step that I think helped everybody understand the seriousness of the situation. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a, it was a brilliant move and obviously one that had to be done because for the sake of everyone's safety, but you know, you know, being a therapist, no one, no one wants to sit and share their, their uh, deepest secrets with someone who has half their face covered. Right. So, um, you know, I'm sure they can see that the negative impact it has on their own interaction with the staff such that it's, it's an excellent uh, passive message and uh, kudos to you and, and your team. Um, You're, you have any staffers saying that, uh, Hey man, can't really, come to work until this thing gets uh, gets worked out or they're they're all troopers and stuck around well they're all troopers in their own way um we have uh, a <laughs> we have mixed mixed reactions we have yes we have some folks that are like i'm i don't i don't understand the hazard i think it might be you know really really bad i'm not going to put myself at risk for my sake and my family's sake i'm not going near it fine mm-hmm. and we have others that are um they're there, they're thinking about, uh, like many care workers do, putting the, the needs of the clients and the residents first to just saying, they need us there, I need to be there. I do, really don't wanna wear this mask. You know, I think it'll be traumatizing to people um, and they're willing to kind of take the risk. And so I think that's kind of 
that's what we're trying to figure out. We need a lot more information kind of as this develops. We are working with our, our Island Health um, partners and BC Housing and WorkSafe and BC CDC and just trying to sort of, you know, we have compliance, we have to find our compliance level, but then you actually have to be able to describe what the risk is in relative terms to people so they can make their choices, right, as to what PPE is available, what they will use. But yeah, so we've got, we've got everybody. Um, I guess we have about 400 staff. So in any group of 400 staff, you're going to have a wide range of opinions. But one of the nice things about our work is people are all here for the same reason, which is to try and help others out. It's so amazing. It's, it's uh, yeah, amazing, amazing, uh, amazing how people come together during difficult times, especially if they're there for the right reasons. And you just described it, right? They're not there just for the paycheck, but there because they care. Um, so I think, my friend, we have beaten the fentanyl story to death. Uh, I think I think we I got a good understanding. No one on this show uh, listening in um, is going to think anything other than you guys did everything you needed to do to mitigate and do the best you could for your residents. So let's turn the light a different way for a second. Tell me about this cool organization. And I say cool, not because it's in the name, but you're such, I did a little research. You're a really cool organization. Uh, people need to understand more about what you do. Uh, wax on about that. Brag about what you're doing. I want to share that across the, across the air. Oh, all right. Um, we are a cool organization. <laughs> do it with some excitement, though. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are a cool organization. We've always prided ourselves in trying to um, – have a, a, a quite a large holistic uh, approach and a range of services so that if someone comes to us in need, say they show up at one of our shelters, that we can meet them there, um, provide the basics. If you know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, let's give them you know food, some shelter, yeah. place to be, yeah. place to relax. And then we can start to work on what else do, those, do they need? I mean, we have our health services that will come in so we can provide that. We've got our overdose prevention services. Um, ideally, we can get them hooked up with some longer term housing. We have a range of subsidies to help out with getting um, out into a community, maybe getting some market rent. And of course, we have our range of supported housing on top of that. Uh, we also have uh, one recreation center and some support services. Uh, the goal that we try to get for people is to get them um, a place to be, a place they can call home, and that means a means to afford it, and enough connections in the community and in the facility itself or building or what have you, so that it's not just four walls, but it's actually can maybe be a home for somebody, and to work at improving their quality of life and their options and choices at the same time. So at this point, like I mentioned, we have 21 buildings, we have three shelters, our health clinic has probably tripled in size since the pandemic hit and uh, health wow. services were kind of needed across a range of supported housing um, sites in town. So we have medical vans that can now travel to sites and bring the health services uh, to the people living at those sites because access to, um, to health is often a, a challenge. Um, yeah. yeah, we're cool. Very cool. Say. You're very cool, by the way. Okay, so... That 10,000 warm socks. My friend, uh, Victoria Cool Aid Society has a 10,000 sock drive. This ends at the end of November, so we still have some time here. You got, you all want to jump in and do what you can to help them, whether you live in their area or not. What else can people do to jump in real quick here? What else can people do? How can they send money to make a difference, Don? Uh, they can go on the web, coolaid.org slash socks. And they can donate if they like. This is a drive that we do every year. Uh, there's there's a thing called Street Feet. 
Um, it may not get as, uh, as cold in Victoria as it might in other parts of the country, but it gets wet and it gets wet for a long time. And people walking around and living rough, living outside, whenever they come to see our, our medical practitioners or show up at the shelters, inevitably they've got soaked feet that need treatment. And we give out a lot of socks to almost everybody that comes to meet those, those health bands or comes into the clinic. So if you want to donate, kool-aid.org slash socks and uh, they will absolutely go to a good use. Don McTavish, you're a cool guy. We'd love to have you come back on in a couple of months and let us know how things are going. If you need a, a platform, you can use mine anytime. Just uh, let us know, and you've got space here for sure, my friend. Uh, oh, and when we, uh, So thank you so much for being a part of this with me tonight. Oh, thanks for your interest. Nice talking with you.